When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Calvin Ng from Yale University. What is Religious Authority? Cultivating Islamic Communities in Indonesia by Ismail Fajri Al-Atas published by Princeton University Press in 2021, draws on groundbreaking anthropological insights to provide a new understanding of Islamic religious authority, showing how religious leaders unite diverse aspects of life and contest differing Muslim perspectives to create distinctly Muslim communities. Taking readers from the 18th century to today, Al-Athas traces the movements of Muslim saints and scholars from Yemen to Indonesia and look at how they traverse co- complex cultural settings while opening new channels for the transmission of Islamic teachings. He describes the rise to prominence of, Is- of Indonesia's leading Sufi master, Habib Lutfi, and his rivalries with competing religious leaders, re- revealing why some Muslim voices become authoritative while others don't. Alatas examines how he u- has used the infrastructures of the Sufi order and the Indonesian state to build a durable religious community while deploying genealogy to present himself as a successor of the Prophet Muhammad, challenging, uh, challenging prevailing conceptions of what it means to be Muslim, what is religious authority demonstrates how the concrete and sustained labors of translation, mobilization, collaboration, and competition are the very dynamics that give Islam its power and diversity. Over the course of our conversation, we'll talk not just about Dr. Al-Athas' approach to navigating between ethnography and history, but also the histories of diaspora and migration, transnational and multi-sided ethnography, and new theoretical and methodological openings in Islamic studies. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk with Professor Ismail Alatas, the author of the important book, What is Religious Authority? Cultivating Islamic Communities in Indonesia. 
By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the past and present of Islam and the Hadrami diaspora in the Indonesian archipelago, as well as new theoretical approaches to Islamic studies and the anthropology of Islam. Ismail Fadri Al-Atas is an assistant professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies and history at New York University. He holds a doctorate in anthropology and history from the University of Michigan and Arbor, a master's in history from the National University of Singapore, and a BA Honours in History from the University of Melbourne, Australia. Trained as both an anthropologist and a historian, he has written extensively in English and Indonesian on Sufism, the Hadrami diaspora in Southeast Asia, and Islamic religious authority. His work examines the intersections of religious authority, social formation, mobility, semiotics, and communicative practice with a focus on Islamic law, Sufism, and the Hadrami diaspora in Indonesia that is, those who trace their origins to the Hadramaut Valley of southern Yemen. He has published several research articles in, among others, Comparative Studies in Society and History, Journal of Islamic Studies, and Indonesia and the Malay World. Apart from these publications, he has authored three books in Indonesian on Sufism, Sainthood, and Islamic epistemology. Welcome, Ismail, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your deeply, deeply important book today. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, a real pleasure. So first off, can you perhaps start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you had uh, throughout this process? Well, uh, thank you, uh, Calvin. Uh, I was born in Indonesia and grew up there for the first 13 years of my life. Uh, my parents then sent me to Australia for high school and college. I studied history at the University of Melbourne and did my MA uh, in history uh, at the university, at the National University of Singapore. Then I went to University of Michigan Ann Arbor to do a doctorate in anthropology and history. Now, even as a college student, I already developed an interest in studying Hadrami scholars and their mobility uh, across the Indian Ocean. Of course, I was born into a Hadrami family, but I did not grow up among Hadrami Indonesians. Uh, in fact, my parents discouraged me uh, from socializing with Hadramis as a child, which I believe sparked my uh, curiosity. Right? That also drove my interest to learn Arabic because I wanted to read texts produced by Hadrami scholars. So I minored in Arabic in college and spent some time in the Hadramaut uh, to immerse myself. Now, throughout my education, I had several influential mentors. Uh, Michael Fiener, uh, who was my NUS advisor, was truly inspiring. Uh, he was trained in the Near Eastern Studies tradition by Merlin Schwartz at Boston, but conducted his research in Indonesia, right? It was Fiener who got me interested in Islamic studies and thinking about connections and parallels between Islam in Indonesia and elsewhere. Uh, Said Naqib al-Attas, the Malaysian philosopher and scholar of Sufism, was another influential mentor. Both uh, Fiener and al-Attas were grounded in, in Islamic studies and Southeast Asian studies, right? So they became my role models in a way. When I moved to Michigan, I was fortunate to work with Webb Keen. Uh, he taught me to be an ethnographer and to think conceptually while remaining grounded. Uh, Nancy Florida, who is a scholar of Java and Islam in Java, is another um, influential mentor. From her, I think I learned that we must take Islam as it appears in different places seriously as Islam, right? And not as syncretic forms of a predefined uh, religion. 
And then there was, of course, Eng Seng Ho, who taught me how to combine history and ethnography uh, by following the people we write about uh, across time and space. So, yeah. Thank you so much for, for that. And I think that it's really, it speaks to the sort of, your training that your book has this sort of capacious quality to it that engages both history as a discipline, but also deeply anthropological uh, questions about ethnography, about um, thick description. So turning to the book, could you please tell us how you came to write What is Religious Authority? How did the idea develop? What was the research process like? Which field sites do you draw on? Um, what archives do you turn to? And how was your writing experience overall? Well, so initially, when I wanted to do uh, what I wanted to do uh, uh, was uh, to study Indonesian students uh, in the Hadramaut, right? But in 2011, when I was supposed to do my research, uh, Yemen was in turmoil, and I couldn't go there to conduct field work. So instead, I traveled around Java, visiting Hadrami scholars in various towns and cities uh, until I met Habib Lutfi bin Yahya in uh, Pekalongan, central Java. And I found him fascinating. I mean, this is Indonesia's most influential contemporary Sufi master who has thousands of disciples and followers, who is the head of the Association of Sufi Orders in Indonesia and is now one of the nine members of the Indonesian President's Advisory Council. And yet his authority is not recognized by his fellow Hadramis. Uh, and that intrigued me, right? So I decided to make him the focus of my field work. I moved to Pakalongan, a, a town on Java's northern coast with a population of around 300,000 or less, I think. I spent over two years studying under Habib Lutfi, um, traveling around Indonesia with him, getting to know his disciples, followers, critics, and competitors. And by the way, for those who do not know, Habib is an honorific uh, used in the Hadramaut and Southeast Asia to refer to a scholar with lineal descent uh, from the Prophet, right? Or a Sayyid. So what became clear to me from that fieldwork experience was that Habib Lutfi was just one among several actors who were actively cultivating Islamic community in town, right? There were many Islamic communities, even in a small town like Pakalongan, of various orientations. Uh, um, you got modernist Muslim communities, you have Shi'i communities, you have Salafi communities and others. Uh, and often these actors clash over legitimacy, followers, and limited resources. Uh, most members of a community do not recognize the authority of other community leaders. Uh, they may be respectful, but they do not take their words seriously. Uh, this is generally true, though some people actively follow more than one uh, leader. Uh, each of these community leaders claims to transmit the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, presenting them as sunnah or model for action. Each exhibited some recognizable form of connection to the prophetic past, whether bloodline, textual mastery, Sufi genealogy, chain of hadith transmission, uh, which allows them to represent that past as a model for others in an authoritative manner, right? But what I found interesting is that the sunnah, as it manifests in these communities, may have similarities uh, with one another, but may also differ. In other words, these actors are performing a work of curation, selection, and translation that is inextricably linked to their audience. Uh, and what one community considers as sunnah may not be so to another. Uh, others may, call, may even call it a bid'ah or represent reprehensible innovation, right? Another important uh, lesson from fieldwork was that 
cultivating an Islamic community demands continuous labor. Uh, this includes teaching, delivering lectures, receiving guests at home, visiting members of the community, attending to their various worries and problems, offering help or consolation, uh, establishing and refurbishing physical sites of congregation, organizing ritual gatherings, fundraising, uh, formalizing relationship through super rituals, and so on and so forth. Right? And this ongoing labor uh, takes place in a crowded, competitive environment. So my fieldwork experience really helped me to think about religious authority. And as such, uh, understanding how authority as an unstable relationship is formed, maintained, questioned, and challenged, and how those contingencies shape Islam as a historical and sociological reality became the central question of my research. Right? What also became clear to me is that the story that I wanted to tell, uh, Kelvin, cannot be emplaced in one particular field site, right? Uh, someone like Habib Lutfi is very mobile. At the same time, he and other similar actors in Pekalongan uh, constantly make references to particular history or historical figures. So to do justice to the story that I wanted to tell, I could not remain in contemporary Pekalongan, right? I had to travel around both spatially and temporally, following leads and routes that are opened up uh, by Habib Lutfi and other actors that I encountered during my fieldwork. Uh, this means not only visiting their contemporaries in other places, but also reading a lot of Hadrami saintly hagiographies, travelogues, and correspondences that luckily I had collected over the years from private libraries in Hadramaut and, and, and Java. Uh, in a way, my fieldwork experience in Pekalongan shaped my selection and reading of this text. It allows me to see some forms of continuity, but also changes. At the same time, uh, reading those texts helped me make sense of what I observed in Pekalongan, right? So there is a constant dialogue uh, between my fieldwork and my reading of the textual materials. And in a way that approach mirrors what my interlocutors are doing. Uh, right? And that led me to the realization that we cannot do justice to the complexity of what's going on with Habib Lutfi in contemporary Pakalongan uh, without situating him in a longer history of Islamic transmission that links the Hadramaut and Java. It is a history that makes actors like Habib Lutfi, who in turn responds to that history by attempting to become history makers. Right? In other words, what became interesting to me is, 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 you know, if we can quote Marshall Salins, how history makes the makers of history. That is just such a beautiful way of putting it. And I think that it really succinctly captures this really elegant structure of your book, where there's a sort of temporal movement between two different moments, right? Where it moves between contemporary ethnography and historical, perhaps historical ethnography or historical um, writing, if you want to call it that. But on another level, you see this constant uh, dynamic interaction between religion as a textual ideal or religion as a textual, uh, a textually defined corpus with religion as a lived sociological reality. Um, so the labor of actually practicing religion as both informed by and informing um, how texts are interpreted, received, circulated, transmitted, etc. So I think that that's a really sort of nice dynamic structure that you're your work really captures that. And I would even extend this to the conception of space in your book as well, because as an anthropologist situated between the fields of Southeast Asian studies and Middle East studies, 
um, this book has a really sort of interesting way of theorizing um, space and theorizing this relation between the Hadramaut Valley and Java as something that's deeply and densely interconnected. So perhaps uh, could you tell us a little bit about how your engagement um, with these two distinct fields of Southeast Asian studies and Middle East studies has informed and enriched your own sort of thinking and research and your work. And considering your interest in religious formations and social mobility, how did your engagement with literature, say, on the Indian Ocean, perhaps, or other forms of um, multi-sided transnational ethnography inform your, 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 your writing? And what can these area studies fields perhaps gain from transregional studies? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, great question, uh, Kelvin. Uh, you know, when I entered college, uh, I mean, I entered college uh, uh, when Hadrami studies was really burgeoning. I mean, this was 2000, between 2003 and 2006, uh, monographs by Ulrike Freitag, Linda Boxberger, Anna Bang, and Ang Seng Ho were published around that time, right? And that really excited me. And those books were my entry point uh, to Indian Ocean Studies. Uh, they showed me the kind of perspectives opened up by shifting the scale from the local or the regional to the transregional by focusing on forms of mobility, right? Then there was Azumardi Azra's uh, work on Southeast Asia Hijaz scholarly networks in the 16th and 17th century, which shows the kind of Southeast Asian history that can be written when we use Arabic sources uh, like uh, Tarajim, right? A biographical encyclopedia that uh, not been traditionally used uh, by uh, historians of Southeast Asia. Um, and apart from showing us how to use mobility as an analytic framework uh, and the possibility of, use, of utilizing Arabic sources, what I found compelling about these works and the more recent ones uh, on Indian Ocean Studies is their decentering of European colonialism and imperialism by focusing on networks that existed before uh, European dominance and have remained uh, long after, right? Uh, so in other words, they treat European dominance simply as a phase in a much longer interconnected history. Uh, and that was quite influential to me, I think. Um, at the same time, I tried to balance this focus on transregional mobility with local or regional mobility. Uh, I do believe that we should not overlook forms of mobility that are more local or regional. Uh, in the book, for example, I compare Islamic teachings and norms that are produced in and through transregional mobility with those that are produced in and through local uh, mobility. Right? I ask how these divergent mobilities uh, affect uh, actors' understanding of Islam and how it ought to be socially realized. So I think both transregional studies and area studies stand to gain from one another. Um, transregional studies helps us uh, to think about culture and society not as bounded and internally constituted. It provides uh, ways of thinking about religion, for instance, as something that is reproduced in and through complex mobilities, exchange and interconnections that generate contact mixture and linkages, although, and I think this is important to, to remember, not everyone and every place participates equally, right? Um, uh, at the same time, uh, area studies helps us to be more grounded um, and really take a locality or a region uh, seriously, although uh, a locality and region shouldn't, I mean, we should not be bounded by locality or, or religion. 
right? Uh, area studies helps us to pay attention to other forms of mobility uh, and the tensions between this kind of local and, and, and trans-regional uh, mobility. So yeah, uh, uh, both for me are complementary. And I do believe that a good trans-regional studies requires a strong grounding uh, in area studies. Thank you so much. I think that that's so beautifully put as well, because there is a deep sort of engagement with um, with the sort of thick description that I think area studies excels at and perhaps um, more trans-regional, trans-regional um, broadly-minded work may perhaps falter. Um, but at the same time, it's also a very sort of spatially um, innovative work in that it toggles between these two spatial skills with a very you know convincing degree of effectiveness, I, I would say. Um, so now let's turn to the book and its chapters. Um, the book is the fruit of multi-sided ethnographic fieldwork, as you had mentioned. Um, but at the same time, it never loses its central fine-grained focus on the biographies, networks, and communities of its, of its interlocutors and historical subjects. In, an, in addition to an introduction and an epilogue, it contains seven chapters broadly divided into two parts, the first, Authority in Motion, and the second, Assembling Authority. Um, can you share with us how you decided to structure the organization of the book? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was doing my research, I began with the present, right? And then explored the history of that present in order to make sense of it. Uh, but as I was writing the book, I decided to tell the history first before moving on to the present to provide the context uh, that can hopefully ease uh, comprehension. Right? So the first part of the book tells uh, the history that we need to know in order to understand what is going on in the present with Habib Lutfi uh, from roughly the 18th century to the mid 20th century. And I do that by focusing on different itineraries of Islamic transmission that have connected Java and the Middle East, uh, which to a certain extent, uh, Kelvin, are still around today in various shapes, whether in the forms of tombs that continue to draw pilgrims, mosque-based communities, a curriculum of Islamic teachings, saintly dynasties, and modern associations. So what, uh, I guess, each of these historic of these three historical chapters begin with an ethnographic present uh, actually to show how these historical itineraries are still very much alive and can be found in the everyday um, uh, in a way there's no teleology here right um, no one itinerary superseding the other instead there's always been coexistence but also tensions and competitions between them uh, at the same time, uh, focusing on these itineraries uh, show how Islamic religious authority is really a contingent relationship that is made, remade, and modified as actors traverse uh, different contexts. This is why I decided to name the first part of the book Authority in Motion. Um, right? Now, the second part of the book then moves to more or less the present. It follows the emergence uh, of a growing Islamic community in contemporary Java, cultivated by Habib Lutfi. In a way, the temporality of the second part follows the biographical becoming of Habib Lutfi, right? With each chapter focusing on a specific theme, his education travels, his utilization of the Sufi order as a mechanism to stabilize community, his relationship with the Indonesian state, and finally, his attempt to tie in the different itineraries of Islamic transmission that are present in Java to his own genealogy, right? Thus allowing him to present himself as a terminus of these distinct lines of transmission that I discuss in the first part of the book. So the second 
part really zooms in on how authority is assembled by bringing together diverse histories and aspects of life. Thank you so much for that. And I think that this sort of juxtaposition between the historical and uh, and the contemporary, the ethnographic, like you said, it's not absolute, but the two rather inform each other. And I think that that comes through very nicely in, in your chapters as well. Um, but first, let's turn to the introduction of the book, which presents to us a juxtaposition um, that Habib Lutfi himself articulates, which is this enduring concept metaphor in discussions of Southeast Asian Islam between the cultivation of so-called date palms and coconut palms, the former as uh, evocative of Arab Islam and the latter of Nusantara or archipelagic Islam. So this conceptual division between the two has a long historical provenance. We can just think of someone like Clifford Geertz's Islam Observed. Um, and it assumes political stakes today within ongoing debates about Pribumi uh, Sasi Islam or the indigenization of Islam. So the critique of this distinction is, you know, well rehearsed at this point, but your work goes further in attempting to engage with the analytic potentials of this agricultural metaphor um, in a spirit that I view as very close to the spirit of imminent critique to really sort of think about what this metaphor offers in terms of um, its own internal logic and to apprehend the plants and the labor of cultivation more literally in a more literal sense. Um, so I guess here my question would be, how does your argument challenge or reframe the terms of such debates on cultivating Islam? And what are the analytic or political implications of staying with this metaphor? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Uh, um, yeah, so the introduction, uh, as you rightly point out, re revolves around uh, the statement made by Habib Lutfi in many of his uh, sermon. And it goes like this. As Indonesian Muslims, we should know how to plant coconut palms and not date Right, and as you pointed out, uh, this statement has largely been perceived as a critique uh, of those who attempt to transplant what they take to be a more authentic articulation of Islam from Arabia to Indonesia. Right, it, indeed, Habib Lutfi is usually portrayed in the media as a champion of pribumisasi Islam or indigenization of Islam. Now, this is an ideological project that emerged in the 1980s as a response to what is usually termed as Arabisasi or Arabization. Uh, this project has morphed into different forms, the most recent of which is a discourse on Islam Nusantara, uh, archipelagic Islam, right, of, of the Malay-Indonesian archipelago, basically, that is posited as antithetical to an analogously essentialized Islam Arab, right, Arabs, uh, Arab Islam. In a way, there is a, an opposition being constructed between a humane archipelagic Islam and an intolerant and turbulent Arab Islam, which of course resonates with an old colonial juxtaposition of good Muslims and bad Muslims. So we have essentialized terms like Arab Islam, Indonesian Islam, and Javanese Islam, all of which carry strong ideological force in contemporary Indonesia, right? And as ideological products, these terms certainly deserve careful study. But unfortunately, sometimes these ideological terms are reproduced inadvertently, perhaps, as analytic categories to comprehend Islam in contemporary Indonesia. Uh, and this is what I'm, you know, I'm quite critical uh, of. Now, you know, historians have increasingly come to deploy terms like hybridity, translation, transculturation, 
to characterize historical encounters between Muslims and other cultures or religious traditions, right? Here I'm thinking about uh, of works by Devin Davies, V. Bendor Benit, Riyang Thum, Tony Stewart, among others. These works are significant in that they demonstrate how culture and religion ought to be understood as composite products of historical interactions, right? The challenge remains, however, in ensuring that such an approach does not succumb to or end up reproducing purportedly neutral dichotomies like Islam versus local Islams, scriptural versus vernacular, central versus peripheral, right? Uh, and can, the list can go uh, on. Uh, we should be careful in assuming local Islam as the historical outcome of Islam plus Y. Uh, where Y points to the various local, cultural, and religious elements deemed to be different uh, from Islam. But uh, what is Islam in such a case, Kelvin? I mean, what is the Islam that is understood to have entered into creative transaction with local cultures or historical traditions? And here is where Habib Lutfi's metaphor becomes uh, useful, if we read it more literally. Um, Date and coconut palms are, of course, members of the monophyletic uh, Araceae botanical family, also known as palmine or palm. So here we have a common ancestor that has become diversified into around 2,000 species, if I'm not mistaken, each exhibiting shared morphological traits, right, but also differences. Uh, that common ancestor has, of course, long vanished. Its existence can only be grasped uh, uh, virtually and partially by cultivating its botanical descendants. Right? Cultivation, however, is a social formation. Uh, it is a project that gathers different actors, materials, and other entities onto a tract of land that needs to be systematically ordered and sown, and in itself is conditioned by climatic and topographical variables. So there is a, co a common ancestor right, that has become diversified into around 2,000 subspecies each exhibiting shared morphological traits, but also differences. That common ancestor has, of course, long vanished. Its existence can be grasped only virtually and partially by cultivating its botanical descendants. Now, cultivation, however, is a social formation. It is a project that gathers different actors, materials, and other entities onto a tract of land that needs to be systematically ordered and sown and in itself is conditioned by climatic and topographical variables, right? So cultivation leads to the emergence and growth of autochthonous, but nevertheless monophyletic agricultural fields. Although their constitutive elements, like the laborers, the seeds, and the tools may come from different places. Um, this helps me to think about Islam uh, as, you know, after all, Islam is an ongoing project of cultivating a living entity, right? A social field or a community that is rooted in a particular context, but is also monophyletic in that they historically develops from an ancestral project, that of the prophet himself, right? Uh, the prophet cultivated his own community, and when he died, others continued that labor uh, and cultivated new communities elsewhere. They tried to emulate the prophet, and yet the memory of that prophetic past was recalled in different ways. Uh, cultural differences means that they also had to adapt to new ways of doing things. Uh, and of course, they began to disagree about the proper way to cultivate and how to, how to do things, right? After all, 
like the vanished common ancestor of, of both date and coconut palms, the prophetic model or the sunnah can be grasped only by retrospective reconstruction of the prophetic past from the vantage point of a particular present, right? And reconstruction uh, always involves acts of selection, delineation, and comparison, all of which have precipitated endless debates. So the idea of a common ancestor is central, right? But that common ancestor can only be accessed through some traits exhibited by its existing descendants. Perhaps one can say that each descendant has a similar claim on that common ancestor, right? After all, no one descendant can be said to fully represent the ancestor, although they may be arguing with one another over that. So in short, what I want to say is that Instead of assuming that Islam is a prepackaged entity that travels to different parts of the world or that local cultures were previously extrinsic to Islam and only gradually came to complicate Islam through historical transactions, we should perhaps focus on the historically and culturally situated labor that articulates the prophetic past and the community, contingently determines the alignment between the two, and as a result, produces an instantiation of Islam. Now, one implication of this analytic perspective is the recognition that the sunnah is always local uh, because it is always produced through specific retrospective attempts of connecting to the prophetic past using different uh, modifying mediums and infrastructures. This includes not just those that took shape outside of what is commonly regarded as central lands. Even within the so-called central lands, there are multiple articulation and realization of the sunnah, depending on the community in and through which it takes shape. We cannot limit the sunnah to the hadith compilations recognized by hadith scholars and use their definition of what constitutes the sunnah to exclude other possible figurations of the sunnah. Uh, Perhaps we can even say that Muslims living in different parts of the world are in reality co-authors of the sunnah. Uh, in that they exert modifying influence uh, in its realization, right? And through that process, they made Islam their own. In this sense, uh, Kelvin, the analytical framework that I tried to develop in the book neither privileges one or another form of Islam as being more or less authentic, right? Nor should we compare different sociological manifestations of Islam with the putative core of Islamic thought and belief. Thank you so much for that. And I think that that really sort of, it's a wonderful elaboration of what this conceptual metaphor opens up in terms of our critical analysis of Islam as both um, simultaneously sociological, but also bearing a relation to um, different streams of thought that are imminent within it. Um, Among the primary theoretical interventions that I uh, see this book uh, contributing to is in this field commonly known as the New Anthropology of Islam that's centrally been influenced by Talal Asad's critical intervention in his essay, The Idea of an Anthropology of Islam, um, where he questions the value of separating scriptural Islam from popular Islam and positing Islam, here he posits Islam as a discursive tradition that bears a link to both textual scripture and to changing forms of social practice. Um, so obviously your work um, um, bears you know, the imprint of that genealogy of um, critical scholarship. Um, but here, I guess I would like, just like to ask you, how does your work present a methodological rethinking of the relationship between social practice on one hand 
and the establishment of forms of religious authority on the other, um, perhaps thinking beyond the textual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, um, uh, Kelvin. Uh, uh, you're right. Uh, Assad's intervention is crucial uh, to my own work. Uh, and since uh, Assad's intervention, scholars have recognized Islam as a discursive tradition right, that includes and relates itself to the scriptures and uh, changing forms of social practice. And so... Uh, many of these works begin by asking how Muslims use textual traditions to inform social practices, right? Now, in contrast to these works, I begin with the notion of a vanished uh, foundational past and argues that it is this temporal estrangement from the prophetic past that necessitates the labor of connecting to along with uh, reconstructing and representing that past as a model or sunnah to others. And that diversifies uh, the sunnah, right? It produces a variety variety of texts, practices, institutions, and forms of religious authority, each claiming to connect uh, Muslims to their foundational past. Now, you know, interpretive conflict, among those who share fundamental frameworks is, of course, a key dynamic that make up Islam as a living tradition, right? And we learn that from uh, Assad. But scholars are not only engaged in scholastic disputations among themselves, but are also actively involved in cultivating communities in and through which their articulation of the sunnah can be transmitted and socially realized. After all, uh, what is the sunnah if it's not a normative standard for others, uh, right? Uh, so for me, one central question in an anthropological study of Islam revolves around uh, social practices and processes that allow specific actors to define and realize the sunnah in uh, consequential ways, right? Now, three things to note here. Um, first, the centrality of politics, uh, because cultivating an Islamic community occurs in a competitive, in, in competitive social terrains, right? There are other Islamic communities led by different religious leaders. There are other non-religious, quote-unquote, social and political formations, including the state. Uh, this leads to complex overlaps and synergies, but also conflicts and contestations, all of which articulate what uh, we commonly refer to as religious and secular domains of life. Now, how these articulations are formed and regulated and what happens when they are altered are important questions for the anthropology of Islam, some of which I address uh, uh, in the book. Uh, Secondly, I try to complement existing anthropological studies of Islam by focusing on the question of infrastructure. An Islamic community does not suddenly sprung, right? It requires sites uh, and mechanism to solidify. Uh, ideas and teachings do not simply flow. They need channels, uh, they need channel for transmission and dissemination. Uh, now, infrastructure make transmission uh, possible, but they also transform and modify what they are supposed to carry, right? Uh, this means that we need to consider how different infrastructures uh, physical, conceptual, and symbolic, um, uh, open up distinct articulatory possibilities while foreclosing uh, others. And finally, uh, the book complements recent works in the anthropology of Islam by taking seriously the question of failures, which has received little attention. Uh, Dan Baker's uh, and David Clouse, for example, recently studied failures 
that individuals experience in becoming moral subjects uh, and looking how looking the looking at the productive potentials of, of failures. In my book, I examine scholars' failures uh, to build lasting communities or gain recognition as religious authority, which helps us understand how certain actors and voices become authoritative uh, when others fail, right? I also examine how failure plays a significant role in the production and modification of religious teachings and practices. So in other words, paying attention to failure allows us to develop a more dynamic and inherently contingent approach to the study of Islam uh, that uh, explores from the ground up how certain actors and voices become authoritative while others uh, fail to do so. That's a really interesting sort of connection to our next question, uh, which I Mm -hmm. think um, is the emphasis on contingency and contradiction in in your book. And here um, you present the story not as the unfolding of a telos, you present the story not as, you know, um, the seamless integration of Islam that's grafted onto um, a social field, but more rather as um, an interactive process that's shot through with uh, contradiction, with competition, with contingency. Um, and here you importantly draw on several theoretical interlocutors. So some of them are Hannah Arendt's definition of labor as ongoing and recurring activities productive of particular life worlds. Um, you draw on Bruno Latour's emphasis on the momentary and contingent availability of particular conceptual and material infrastructures, uh, David Scott's idea of the problem space as a discursive argumentative context with uh, particular stakes, and perhaps most importantly, uh, Louis Althusser's conception of articulation as contradictory interrelationships within a given social totality. Um, And you present to us this framework of articulary labor um, which I want you to, to perhaps dwell on a little bit longer because I see it as a really important sort of framework that you introduce in your book. How have this, um, how does this framework of articular, articulary labor enable us to better understand this relationship of Islam um, to both the social setting that it uh, exists in as well as the, um, its claims to religious authority? And how might an engagement with, you know, more broadly speaking, this continental theoretical tradition enrich the literature um, on the anthropology of Islam? Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, uh, Calvin. That's a great uh, uh, question. Uh, first of all, uh, yes, I do read a little bit of uh, continental theories here and there, uh, although I do not subscribe to or identify myself as belonging to a particular theoretical school, right? Uh, so I'm not an Arentian or an Althusserian uh, for that matter, uh, nor do I see myself as, as really a participant of a theoretical debate. Um, I mainly read those works to help me generate research questions that I can think about as I do empirical research, right? I try not to use theories to explain a phenomenon. Uh, some of these theories help me to think of connections that I may not thought of before, which can then be rephrased as a research question. Though I also believe that a good research question is one that matters not only to me or to other academics, but also to my friends and interlocutors in the field. Uh, So questions like what is religious authority, what is the sunnah, what is an Islamic community are important not only because they are interesting anthropologically, but also because uh, those questions matter for the people in the field, right? So uh, having said that, let me go back to your uh, question about articulatory uh, labor. So um, Hannah Arendt's uh, observation of authority as a relationship between a present and a past deemed to be foundational actually shapes the way I 
think about Islamic religious authority, right? Uh, those in authority are those who connect a community with its foundational past and augment that past for present purposes, right? So in a way, what I understand uh, from Arendt is that uh, those in authority are connectors. And what they do is articulating the past and the present. Uh, and this pushed me to explore how different actors perform this articulatory labor. Um, and what I learned from reading hagiographic texts and from fieldwork is that this very process modulates the past in light of the present and vice versa, right? So here we have a shared foundational past that nevertheless can be represented in various ways depending on the context, the people, and so on. Now, another interesting question that Arendt does not pursue is that of infrastructure. If authority is a particular relationship that articulates the foundation of past and the present, then what infrastructure sustains it, right? And that is where I find Latour's work useful uh, to think with, precisely because uh, Latour helps me to think of social formation as a fragile achievement. Uh, now, if a social formation is by definition momentary, the question becomes, what makes some social formations durable and susceptible to growth, while others are liable to contraction or remain ephemeral? What allows for durability? Right? Something that persists is not something static. Uh, for a relationship or a social formation to keep on existing, it has to be continuously reproduced. And this became clear to me as I observed Habib Lutfi and other Islamic community leaders. These actors are engaged in an unceasing articulatory labor. Uh, they form and maintain their relationship with their followers and connect them to their foundational uh, past. And I use the term labor, uh, which I derive from Arendt, uh, because you know it denotes something that is continuous, something that uh, uh, is ongoing. It is not something that is uh, geared towards a finished product. And that's how uh, Arendt discusses the difference between work and, 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 and labor. Uh, and of course, it, it destabilizes distinction between production and, and, and action. Uh, so that's why, you know, uh, I call this work articulation, but I do, I, I do not call it work. I call it labor, articulatory labor, right? Now, if every Islamic social formation or Islamic community is a product of articulatory labor uh, and differences among Islamic communities can be explained in terms of articulatory variation, then does this mean that there is no meaningful social totality that we can think of in making sense of Islam? And this is where Althusser is useful uh, to think with. To put it simply, um, Althusser developed the notion of articulation to conceive of a more complex social totality, right? Made up of contradictory interrelationships among different modes of production that coexist alongside one another. Each mode of production is an outcome of articulation, an outcome of contradictory interrelationships. But these different modes of production may come to be conjoined and articulated with one another. So what we call a totality is an uneasy, if not contradictory, interrelationship among different modes of production, each of which uh, is in itself an outcome of contradictory interrelationship. 
right? Now, I found that exposition very useful to think about Islamic history and Islamic uh, social totality, right? It, it allows us to break down the holistic unit of Islam or Ummah, which after all is a contradictory ensemble or an imaginary reconstruction, and instead focus on varieties of articulatory processes that generate different Islamic communities or, or jamaas. It permits us to conceptualize each Islamic community, even those claiming to speak on behalf of the Ummah, as a locally embedded assemblage made up of a combination of elements that are brought together according to a specific articulatory, uh, articulatory uh, mode. So we have different communities that are relatively autonomous, yet each of them is articulated with other communities through interactions or contestations, right? It is these relations, whether amicable or adversarial, that make these Islamic communities meaningfully different uh, from one another. Now, what this entails, Kelvin, uh, is that instead of thinking about Islamic history as the history of the Ummah, in historicist or evolutionary manner that oftentimes efface historical difference, we can think about Islamic history as the history of contradictory interrelationships between different jama'as of various shape and scale. Right? And that means transition from a totality to the next should not be understood as continuity or evolution, but instead as a perpetual process of articulation both the articulation that make up uh, each jama'a and the articulation between jama'as that make up a complex social totality. In fact, the articulation that makes up each jama'a affects the contradictory interrelationship that makes up uh, the social totality. And this, I think, provides uh, us with ways for thinking about Islamic history and about the ummah that does not privilege one jama'a one mode of articulation or one region uh, over the others. Thank you so much for that. And I think that that exactly captures the thesis of your book, which is that you have to view this as a complex shifting assemblage composed of multiple constituents that is irreducible uh, to any single one of them. And to really reckon to stay with that sort of complexity. Um, um, yeah, I, 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 I really view that as a sort of key theoretical intervention that your book provides uh, in uh, the literature on the anthropology of Islam. Um, so perhaps turning to the first part of the book, Authority Emotion, which is more explicitly historical, tracing the travels and trajectories of the Haddadian articulatory paradigm, uh, emerging between Hadrama and Java. Java. Um, the first chapter observes uh, several pre-Haddadian modes of articulatory Articulatory labor that enabled the cultivation of divergent forms of Islamic community in uh, both Hadramaut and Java. Um, so each of these infrastructures uh, realized their visions of a sovereign Islamic community under the religious authority of different fig figures, be it uh, the Javanese ruler or a community of uh, elect uh, officials. So, in light of these different modes of articular articulatory labor, um, what are the implications for, for staging the cultivation of religious authority um, as contingent and precarious? And how does this enable us to understand Islam perhaps in more historical terms? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, uh, Kelvin. So in, in chapter two, uh, uh, sorry, in chapter one, 
I look at different figurations of Islamic community, right, or Jama'ah that had historically emerged in Java and the Hadramaut. Uh, for Java, I look at uh, the Pardikan, which is a free and autonomous villages uh, led by a Muslim scholar or saint, and the Kraton, the Javanese royal court. Uh, for Hadramaut, I look at Tariqa or Sufi order that emerge among the elites of the urban centers and Hauta or sacred sanctuaries in tribal hinterlands. Now, each of these figurations of Jama'a or community revolved around particular figures of authority, uh, whether scholars, Sufi masters, saints, or sultans, who were recognized by members of the community as connectors to the prophetic past uh, and living embodiments and purveyor of prophetic teachings. There are three points I want to highlight here. Uh, first, the chapter uses the notion of Jama'a as a common frame to analyze different kinds of Islamic social formation. Uh, this allows productive comparison between various kinds of Islamic communities that have emerged in different parts of the Muslim world without treating some as more Islamic or authentic than others, right? Uh, now, what became clear to me as I compare these different figurations of Jama'a is that despite their differences, there is one fundamental dynamic at play, which is articulatory labor. That is, these Islamic communities were cultivated by actors who performed the labor of articulating the Sunnah and the Jama'ah and who, in the process, gain recognition as religious authorities. So articulatory labor is the constant here, okay? Uh, but the contours of the Sunnah and the Jama'ah as socially realized through this articulatory labor is variegated. That is to say, the shape of their realization is historically and culturally uh, uh, specific. Uh, this has to do with the fact that articulatory labor involves subjecting both the sunnah and the jama'ah to mutual calibration. Uh, it requires a degree of wisdom and trial and error in reconfiguring the sunnah to suit the concrete needs of the community. Uh, the kind of sunnah that was transmitted and realized among the elites of the urban centers, for example, may not be appealing to tribesmen who demand that the Sunnah does not depart too radically from tribal customs. Uh, and this is what led to the emergence of multiple distinct, yet often overlapping Islamic communities, uh, each with its own uh, realization of the Sunnah, right? Secondly, the actors who cultivate these communities had to gain the recognition of the people. To be taken as authoritative, they had to forge connections with the locals, gain their trust, and maintain the cohesion of the community through various techniques, uh, strategies, and negotiations. They also have to exhibit different kinds of connection to the prophetic past in ways that are recognizable to the people, right? A genealogy of Sufi initiation uh, and textual learning, for example, may be effective to gain the recognition of elite urban dwellers, but they did not mean much to the tribesmen uh, who valued thermaturgical abilities, demonstration of wealth and generosity, and intertribal diplomatic acumen. Uh, uh, a Javanese monarch claiming to be the caliph of God and the prophet can deploy violent measures or stage various theatricalities to gain that recognition. So in a way, religious authority is contingent and, and precarious uh, relationship. Finally, uh, focusing on different modes of articulatory labor opens up an alternative way, uh, way of narrating the history of Islam that does not posit the religion as the factor that unites historical differences. Right? Instead, it allows us to think about a narrative approach to the history of Islam that highlights its polyphonic reality, uh, one that situates Islam as a historically contingent locally situated and culturally embedded sociological achievement. 
uh, multiple itineraries and transmission and distinct modes of articulatory labor produce various social realizations of Islam, although some would view such a polyphony as a problem that needs to be uh, transcended. Thank you so much for that. And I think that that also leads us very nicely into the second chapter that focuses more directly on Al-Haddad and his attempt to formulate a a new mode of articulatory labor um, around a text-centered paradigm. Um, that really focuses on rendering the sunnah both accessible to the commoners um, and as a standardized normative code. Um, So the central figure in this chapter is one Abdullah bin Omar bin Yahya, who traveled from the Hadramaut to Singapore and onward to to Java. Um, So how and why did this paradigm assume its import and importance at a specific temporal junction that it did? And how does an understanding of these different historical itineraries of Islamic transmission allow us to appreciate this relationship between mobility on one hand and uh, transformations in Islamic thought on the other? And here I'm thinking along the lines of perhaps Shahab Ahmed's uh, framework of pretext, text, and context. So what is the relationship here that you're sketching between um, the emergence of the Sunnah um, with the sociological and infrastructural um, conditions allowing it to uh, allowing its ascendance in that manner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Calvin. Yeah, so the second ch- chapter looks at this uh, 17th, 18th century Baalawi scholar, right, Abdullah bin Alwi al Haddad, who came up with a new mode of articulatory labor that sustained a vision of an objectified and culturally disembedded Islam, right? And he was reacting to the prolonged political instability in the Hadramaut and the inability of Islam as it was realized there to serve as a common moral code. So he saw the different realization of the Sunnah that I just talked about uh, as uh, somewhat problematic. And, and he wanted to find ways to minimize this normative indeterminacy. And he did this by codifying prophetic teachings into a curriculum made up of accessible, abridged, theological, legal, and liturgical texts, positive to be universally applicable. Um, this text, in a way, served as a technology for duplicating identical Islamic communities, right? Um, of course, such texts demand actors who can transmit them to others, but whose authority is contingent solely on their mastery of this text. And these actors can range from graduates of madrasa to shopkeepers uh, who have previously studied them, right? So in this sense, the Haddadian articulatory mod, uh, mode shifted the emphasis uh, away from the inimitable achievements of saints, saintly kings, Sufi masters, and their dis- descendants that I uh, discussed in chapter one um, to teachable texts and achievable lessons accessible to the commoners. Right? Instead of a malleable product of ongoing interactions between a localized present and the prophetic past, the sunnah is reimagined as being prepackaged in texts that can easily travel, uh, remain constant across contexts, and is impervious to culture and other local, uh, localizing forces. Uh, this paved the way for widespread participation uh, in standardized Islamic learning and practice not only in the Hadramaut, but also in places like East Africa, uh, East African coast, and Southeast Asia. Now, uh, in Java, this Haddadian mode of articulatory labor began to take root in the early 19th century. And there were two reasons for this. First was the pacification of Java's Islamic sultanates by the Dutch following the Java War of 1825 to 1830. 
30. This was a time when they established articulatory mode that centered on the royal court and the figure of the ruler as an axis of cosmos, a caliph of God, and a regulator of religion was disintegrated, right? The second has to do with the expanding world of the Hadrami entrepreneurial diaspora in British Malaya and the Dutchess Indies, which generated an increasing demand for tutors from the Hadramal who could provide religious instruction for the merchants, their families, and by extension, the broader population uh, using this Hadadian text. Now, the itineraries of these Hadrami scholars intersected with other itineraries of Islamic transmission and generated a synergy. This was a time when Javanese pilgrimage to Mecca was on the rise. Uh, in Mecca, these pilgrims were exposed to the works of Ghazali and his commentators uh, like Abdul Wahab Sha'rani, who, like Al-Haddad, uh, stressed the dissemination of simplified texts on legal and ethical guidance. The second itinerary that intersected with that of the Hadrami scholars was the movement of Muslim scholars away from the Javanese royal courts after the conclusion of the Java War. And that resulted in the rapid proliferation of new Islamic communities in the countryside, uh, usually based in a village langar or prayer hall. Now, being among the commoners uh, meant that these scholars had to adjust to simpler pedagogical texts, rendering the Haddadian texts, along with uh, other similar texts, uh, useful uh, for the purpose. So in short, um, chapter two shows a, how a vision of an objectified Islam emerge through a particular mode of articulatory labor that is less tied to authoritative figures and through the convergence of several mobilities that came to form a synergy at a particular point in time, right? Now, in regards to your other question, Kelvin, about uh, Shahab Ahmed's uh, tripartite uh, framework of pretext, text, and context of revelation, I think there is certainly a parallel with the development I am charting here. One of Ahmed's central point in what is Islam is that historically, Muslims have exhibited different ways of relating to Islam beyond those provided by the scriptures, right? For example, the once widespread belief in the knowability of the unseen world, uh, posited to be a source of divine revelation or what he calls the pretext of revelation. Now, according to Ahmed, this allowed Muslims to explore and produce a myriad of Islamic discourses and practices deemed to be authoritative beyond what is typically regarded as Islamic scripture or scripture-based prescriptive texts, right? But Ahmed noted that in the modern era, Muslims began conceiving of and living normative Islam primarily as hermeneutical engagement with texts of revelation, that is the scriptures. Uh, many Muslims even go as far as foreclosing the possibility of knowing the pretext of revelation. So there is a similarity here, I think, with the way Muslims imagine the Sunnah. I recall that in chapter one, uh, I look at the different ways Muslim oriented themselves toward the prophetic past in their attempt to derive religious meanings and norms, right? And texts, uh, including hadith texts, uh, is merely one among the many forms employed. Uh, what we see with the Haddadian paradigm and other similar articulatory paradigm is an attempt to redefine Muslims' relationship with their foundational past, primarily as an engagement with a set of texts assumed to contain reliable accounts of that past. And that development gradually resulted in the crystallization of this ideological notion of a culturally disembedded Islam. 
Thank you. I I think that that explanation makes a lot of sense, and I think that um, to bring this into the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, um, which is the focus of chapter three, where you trace the development of Islamic communities established by Hadadian scholars, you focus on this one figure who's central to this transformation, uh, Ahmed bin Abdullah bin Al Attas. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, my question would be: How and why did his sanctification assume such a central, important role? In the, geneal- in the genealogical authority of uh, the mansabs that were the saintly dynasties that were established during this period. And what does that tell us, what does that reveal about the role of human agency in maintaining or transforming a religious community? Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so yeah, um, in chapter three, I, I look at this articulatory labors of migrating Hadadian scholars uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, Java. Uh, focusing on the case of Ahmad bin Abdullah al-Attas, who arrived in Pakalongan, I think, around uh, 1876. Uh, and is now regarded as the city's principal saint, uh, right? And of course, al-Attas is just one among several Hadadian scholars from this period who enjoy posthumous fame as saints uh, and whose cultivated communities developed into saintly dynasties, right? Against the Hadadian uh, insistence or, or attempt to shift it. Uh, to, to shift authority away from uh, saint uh, and sainthood. So I tried to show how this happened. Um, it's a bit complicated, but uh, I'll try to provide the gist of it. Uh, first, uh, this period witnessed a steep increase in the Hadrami migration to Java, thanks to the opening of Suez Canal and steamship travel. Uh, and many of those who migrated in this period were tribesmen, right? Uh, most of whom were spiritual clients of, of a particular saintly dynasty back home. Uh, secondly, the Dutch imposed a policy of ethnic segregation, which meant that Hadramis had to live in legally imposed Arab quarters. So the forms of sociality in these Arab quarters began to resemble those in the Hadramal. The tribesmen perceived Al-Attas just like their family and forefathers perceived the saintly founders of the sacred communities that I talked about in, in chapter one. Uh, after all, this was the type of Islamic community and form of authority that they were used to. Right, uh, so when Alatas passed away in 1929, uh, his son was recognized as a mansab or head of a saintly dynasty, whose authority stemmed from his genealogical connection to the founder of the community, now regarded as a saint. In other words, due to the changing makeup of its members, the community cultivated by Alatas using the Hadadian mode of articulatory labor began to increasingly resemble a saintly dynasty. And this process involved the composition of Al-Attas' hagiographies, the construction of his mausoleum, and the institution of an annual commemoration of his death. Um, And behind this transformation of a Haddadian community into a saintly dynasty is a changing mode of articulatory labor that adjusted the way the Sunnis imagined and generated a different form of authority, right? If the Haddadian paradigm champions an imagination of a culturally disembedded sunnah, an Islamic community that centers around a saintly dynasty revolves around a locally embedded sunnah that crystallized from the interaction between its founding saint and his followers and subsequently institutionalized by his hereditary successors. If the Haddadian paradigm shifted the emphasis away from the inimitable achievement of saints, an Islamic community that centers around a saintly dynasty sanctifies the historic labor of the founding saint and idealized it as the community's foundational past 
and the source of the community's sunnah. Okay? If the authority of a Haddadian scholar comes from his mastery of a certain text, the authority of a mansab hinges on his genealogical connection to a saintly um, a founder, right? a saintly forebear. So yes, you're right. The transformation of religious community, of a religious community, is tied to a changing mode of articulatory labor, and that reveals the role of human agency in maintaining or transforming a, a religious community. But what is important to stress here, Kelvin, is that those who make up the community, uh, uh, in this case, the tribesmen, are as responsible for this transformation as those who are in the position of authority, right? In this sense, we can speak of the agency of the jama'ah in modulating what ought to be considered as the sunnah. Uh, they are, in a way, the co-authors uh, of the sunnah. Now, this story of the transformation of a Haddadian community into a saintly dynasty ultimately shows that any attempt to purify the sunnah from cultural accretions can never be completely successful, right? Uh, texts that were used for a purificatory uh, a project, for example, can become objects of fetishism, right? The question of who transmit these texts and to whom they are communicated is also significant as human actors are not abstract individuals, right? The people who make up an Islamic community come up with their own cultural practices and memories, which in turn may shape the way the textually mediated sunnah is understood, transmitted, and uh, socially realized. Thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense, I think, uh, because when you're thinking about this interplay, uh, as you have characterized it, between, uh, between text and uh, community, it's always staged as a sort of interactive uh, relationship rather than one that is um, necessarily teleological or preordained in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and those themes, I think, continue on in the second part of the book as well, Authority in Motion, which turns instead to ethnography and looks at focuses on this growing Islamic community in contemporary Java cultivated by Habib Lutfi. Um, so you've spoken about Habib Lutfi earlier in, in, in some detail, um, as a prominent religious figure with a credible claim to prophetic past, despite uh, the lack of any connection that he has with an established scholarly or saintly background. Um, so turning really quickly to your fourth chapter, uh, my question is, what might his biography indicate about the complex interplay between genealogy and mobility in the construction of religious authority uh, personified in this figure of uh, Habib Lutfi? Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, the chapter follows uh, the biographical becoming of Habib Lutfi, right, uh, and his labor of cultivating an Islamic community. And uh, yeah, Habib Lutfi does not come from any known established uh, scholarly or saintly background, at least in the memory of the people in Pekalongan. Uh, he may be a Baalawi Sayyid, uh, but his father was not a scholar who could bequeath him uh, with an already cultivated community, right? Uh, this means that he had to form connections and embed himself in established genealogical channels, whether genealogy of Sufi initiation or chain of hadith and other textual transmission, to be recognized as a credible connector to the prophetic past. But unlike his fellow Hadramis, who usually travel to the Hadramaut or Mecca for that purpose, Habib Lutfi traveled across Java in search of teachers who could connect him to the prophetic past. So the case of Habib Lutfi suggests how an aspiring scholar 
may assume a position of authority by tapping into different genealogies, networks, and itineraries of Islamic transmission. Right? In this sense, it highlights the practical and ideological centrality of genealogy and mobility in the formation of Islamic uh, authority. Uh, let me unpack this. Um, Genealogy works to identify, authenticate, and limits the communicative channels in the transgenerational transmission of prophetic teachings, right? And there are different forms of genealogy that can link an actor to the prophetic past, like nasab or bloodline, uh, isnad or chain of hadith transmission, silsila or chain of Sufi initiation. Genealogy also operates ideologically as a recognizable basis of religious authority, allowing others to perceive its bearers as a credible connector uh, to the prophetic past. Now, if genealogy serves as a channel that links uh, the present to the prophetic past, mobility allows aspiring scholars to embed themselves in different genealogies of knowledge transmission. Uh, those who completed a journey in, in search of knowledge and returned to their homeland are usually perceived by others to have expanded religious knowledge. Right? And certain itineraries, say traveling to Mecca or Cairo or Hadramaut, are deemed more prestigious than traveling to local educational institu institutions. Now, the case of Habib Lutfi pushes us to think about the contingent relationship between genealogy and mobility in the constitution of religious authority. Um, among the Baalawis, for example, genealogy in the form of nasab or bloodline function to direct the spatial mobility of the bearer of that genealogy, right? So there is an imperative to synchronize mobility and genealogy, uh, which is the primary reason why most Indonesian Baalawis are sent to study under Baalawi teachers, whether in Indonesia or in Arabia, instead of learning from non-Baalawi teachers. In doing so, they are able to acquire another genealogy, right? This time, silsila, to complement one's uh, bloodline. So for the Baalawis, having Baalawi bloodline and silsila is central to the formation of religious authority. In light of this, uh, the case of Habib Lutfi becomes particularly interesting owing to the divergence of his mobility from the directive of his own uh, bloodline, of his own genealogy, right? Habib Lutfi's divergent itinerary, however, allowed him to tap into other non-Baalawi silsilas. He studied under numerous Javanese teachers, including uh, the Khalidi Naqshbandi Sufi master Sheikh Abdul Malik, and he was adopted. He was adopted into that non-Baalawi silsila. Abdul Malik appointed Habib Lutfi as his successor, hence he was able to inherit a community that has been cultivated since the days of Abdul Malik's father. In this sense, uh, divergent mobility and adoptive genealogy constitute both the spatial and temporal foundation of Habib Lutfi's uh, religious authority. Right? He is, in a way, equipped with two different genealogies connecting him to the prophetic past, a Baalawi bloodline and a Naqshbandi uh, uh, silsila. For this reason, uh, in the eyes of many of his followers, his claim to religious authority is even stronger than his teacher. Uh, right? uh, but for his fellow Baalawis, Habib Lutfi's divergent uh, mobility and genealogy are adequate grounds for rejecting the legitimacy of his religious authority. So in short, Kelvin, um, you know, what matters for people is not simply that you are connected to the prophetic past, but the actual trajectory that connects you to the prophetic past, right? Uh, certain genealogies may connect you to the prophetic past, but that may serve as the ground to, uh, uh, to reject your claim uh, as a religious authority. Thank you so much for that. And 
in chapter five as well, you focus on the infrastructural underpinnings of Habib Lutfi's uh, articulatory labor. Um, mm. And you talk about the Sufi order or the tariqa as an ordering mechanism uh, that transforms volatile networks into a durable and hierarchical relationship between master and disciple. Mm. So what does this sort of view of the sunnah as something that's socially embedded uh, enable us to see? Um, and how does thinking about the everyday as a category of analysis enrich our understanding of um, of both the infrastructural labor that uh, Habib Lutfi carries out, but also um, also the the lived reality, the lived sociological reality of religion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, great. Uh, so, yeah, um, Habib Lutfi as a Sufi master uh, is able to employ the Sufi order as a mechanism uh, to stabilize and legalize his relationship with his followers. Right, legalize through the practice of bayah or oath of allegiance. Uh, in this sense. A Sufi order can be understood as an ordering mechanism made up of networks uh, uh, and infrastructure. Uh, Now, as an ordering mechanism, a Sufi order shapes and reinforces the disciples' recognition of the master as a connector to the prophet, right? Uh, His personality and conduct, as well as the practices he institutes, are considered normative for his followers. As one disciple of Habib Lutfi uh, told me, a Sufi master is an exemplar, a, a good one. Uh, he is the purveyor of the living sunnah. Now, this is an interesting way of putting it because if one says that the sunnah is living, then it means that you recognize the universal regulatory force of the sunnah without, however, believing in the uniformity and finality of its content. Right? which may be derived from prophetic precedents corroborated by texts, but may also include innovations tied to specific contexts and challenges that are nonetheless taken to epitomize prophetic teachings owing to the figure of the master. Uh, so the hierarchical relationship that links a Sufi master to his disciples enables uh, Habib Lutfi to augment the sunnah by, evaluate and, by evaluating and adjusting inherited uh, teachings or introducing new practices to suit the changing proclivities of his followers without being perceived as deviating from prophetic teachings. Such a relationship also enables a Sufi master to transform the foundational prophetic past into individualized and customized models for action. In this sense, uh, the Sunnah becomes a living, uh, socially embedded and cumulative model that guides uh, by the world Uh, that guides the world, but is simultaneously guided by the world. Uh, Now, uh, treating the Sunnah as a living and socially embedded norm allows us to think beyond a major division that has taken shape in the anthropology of Islam, uh, which has arisen uh, in part over conceptualization of agency, right? Uh, Several influential works have come to favor approaches that focus on authoritative practices, piety and self-cultivation or subjectivation in light of Islamic norms. Uh, These works have been criticized by other anthropologists for privileging coherent and programmatic modes of religion uh, rather than the contradictions, incoherencies, and the ambiguities of the everyday. So for these scholars, the everyday acts as a site that allows for critical evaluation of and even creative resistance to religious norms. Now, here I problematize this juxtaposition 
and the opposition of normative moral and ethical codes and the everyday. And I use the dynamics of the living sunnah to question this contrast uh, between allegedly hyper-coherent Islamic norms and the messiness of the everyday precisely by observing the sunnah as a site of instability, right? That allows for creative exploration demanded by the everyday. So in other words, Islamic norms are as embedded, as imminent in and modulated by individual and cultural particularities, as well as the vicissitudes of the everyday. Thank you so much for that. And um, in some ways, your analysis also brings religion from the realm of the textual, the realm of the sanctified, to a more, perhaps, uh, the realm of the everyday, the realm of human interaction, but also the realm of real material concerns that govern uh, the decisions that people make on an everyday individual basis. Um, which I think is a theme that links uh, your fifth chapter with your sixth chapter on politics and attends to Habib Lutfi's relationships with different actors and institutions of uh, the Indonesian state. Um, focusing particularly on his militarized Maulid celebrations, which I just found to be a really interesting sort of um, really interesting sort of facet of, of this chapter. Um, here and you here you talk about these relationships neither as cooptation or acculturation, but as articulation. And I think that what you're doing here is really offering a really revised notion of power. So you're challenging the idea of power as necessarily unilateral or imposed from above. Um, and in, in that way, I think that you're also um, sketching out a new relationship uh, of the boundaries between state, society, and religion. Mm-hmm. So here, I'm just going to invite you to speak a bit more about how you're conceptualizing power um, by looking at Habib Lutfi's engagement with politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, thank you. So, uh, yeah, uh, chapter six uh, looks at how Habib Lutfi's uh, ability to work with different institutions of the indigenous state, like the military and local government, has really allowed him to use the state as infrastructures of religious authority, right? Uh, this uh, enabled him to organize uh, militarized religious events, uh, for instance, like, you know, the militarized maulids or celebration of the prophet's birthday, uh, together with the indigenous military that in turn facilitates the expansion of his community at the expense of other uh, Islamic communities, right? Uh, you know, this proliferating militarized uh, maulids uh, actually becomes a site where Habib Lutfi was able to transmit his interpretation of Islam to an increasingly broader audience, even in places that were uh, formerly hostile to him, right? I mean, when you organize a religious event with the military, I mean, who would dare to object, right? Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, and, and and that allows, in other words, Habib Lutfi's relationship with state actors allowed him to um, challenge uh, competing Islamic community leaders and rechannel state power to enact a consequential intervention on behalf of his followers or prospective uh, uh, followers, right? And uh, that kind of relationship um, was possible owing to the need of state actors and institutions to work with Muslim communities and work with religious leaders like Habib Lutfi to maintain their presence and realize a particular goal. So in a way, the relationship is mutually beneficial, right? Uh, but by working with a Muslim community leader like Habib Lutfi, state actors be- 
become ensnared in interpretive conflicts and congregational competitions between different Muslim leaders. Uh, different state actors work with competing le religious leaders in pursuit of varying agendas, often against other state actors uh, and Muslim leaders, right? So, but, you know, there is a long-held tendency to explain this kind of relationship as cooptation of Islam, as you said. Uh, and this kind of explanatory paradigm I think reaffirms the political overdetermination of the communities by technologies of governance, right? It privileges the logic of the state and downplays the agency of religious leaders and communities in working with the state for reasons that may be different from statist agendas or irreducible uh, to secular politics, right? The underlying problem with co-optation, I think, is that it departs from overly simple and rigid distinctions between uh, the political and the religious on the one hand, and between the state and society. And this forecloses serious analysis of the possible nexuses that entwine the religious and the political. It also forestalls um, exploration into the polyvalent and contradictory nature of the state and state power as reproduced in and through multiple uh, social relationships, right? So instead, the approach that I use in this chapter is one that begins not with a reified conception of the state and an essentialized notion of Islam, but with the contingent and grounded relationalities that reproduce both the state and Islam as volatile uh, social realities in the everyday, right? And I use the notion of articulation and articulatory labor once again, uh, this time to think about various contingent political religious nexuses that link state actors and state institutions and Islamic communities. Um, uh, central to articulation is, of course, the construction of nodes uh, that allows for the displacement, entanglement, and dispersion of meaning and agenda. Right? So focusing on articulatory labor accentuates the role of religious leaders like Habib Lutfi and state actors uh, in constructing uh, shall we say, discursive, material, and ritual nodes like militarized maulid, in and through which religious and secular political meanings and agendas can symbiotically intersect, right? Uh, and thinking with articulation opens up, I think, a more uh, nuanced uh, perspective onto the affective, uh, material, and performative dynamics that simultaneously engender uh, state power and religious authority. Uh, right, allowing for state empowerment of religious leaders and religious authorization of uh, of the state by religious actors. Uh, this, of course, is not equivalent to saying that the state is in decline or its apparatus is dysfunctional, right, uh, leading uh, to a need for it to work with non-state entities. Instead, I think, uh, Kelvin, it is to acknowledge that the dominance and power of the state is polyvalent and often contradictory. And as such, it cannot be referred to a single uh, uh, logic, uh, to, to a logic of a single uh, force, right? Uh, and this is what has been shown in many recent works uh, in the anthropology of the state. And, and what I'm doing here is really building up on those uh, works. That's really wonderful. So the state not as, you know, a hegemonic sort of vision of instrumental rationality, but itself as embedding many multiple different sort of sources of power, modalities of power that operate in very diverse and diffuse manners. Mm -hmm. um, I think here, uh, your final chapter turns to 
uh, Habib Lutfi's labor of recovering Indonesia's saintly past. And here you talk about the multiple uh, genealogies of Islamic transmission that he, um, his labor of composition encompasses. Um, I must, you know, commend you here for just this structural elegance uh, in the organization of this book because you begin the book with um, a concern with history and you end this book very beautifully again with um, the act of historical writing or the act of historical composition. Um, here I want to ask you, how might we think about the act of composition um, perhaps as a political performative that uh, brings into existence what it's trying, it's supposed to only describe. Because you emphasize that rather than the facticity of these genealogies, that's rather inconsequential. But more rather, what's important here is the labor of con- uh, composition itself. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would just like to invite you to elaborate a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Calvin. That's uh, very kind of you. Uh, it is certainly my favorite uh, uh, chapter. I mean, one that took me a while uh, to finish precisely because the biggest challenge I found when uh, writing the book was how to conclude a story that in reality remains unfinished. Right. Uh, so in a way, this chapter is a tentative terminus to the story uh, I'm telling. Uh, and it follows Habib Lutfi's labor of recovering Indonesia's saintly past. Uh, he does this by identifying old graves as saintly tombs, providing them with recognizable histories and genealogies and instituting uh, commemorative rituals. Uh, in most cases, uh, he has been successful owing to his alliance with the state actors, uh, like mayors of different cities who have been interested in capitalizing on the growth of religious tourism in the country, right? Uh, now, you know, for Habib Lutfi, of course, um, recovering Indonesia's saintly past and building saintly shrines uh, is important because it facilitates intimacy and connectivity that enable Muslims to viscerally imagine themselves as part of a transgenerational relationship that links them to the prophetic past, right? But much of his labor, however, uh, has been devoted to the hagiographical composition of his own little-known uh, and unrecorded forebears. And in composing their hagiographies, Habib Lutfi employs old and new materials uh, to produce an interconnected ensemble of oral narratives, texts, tombs, and rituals that corroborate one another, right? Uh, And this hagiographical composition projects Habib Lutfi not merely as someone uh, whose authority is based uh, on the fact that he was genealogically adopted into the Naqshbandi and Shadali Silsilas or Sufi genealogies, but also as a lineal successor of an old but forgotten Ba'alawi saintly dynasty, closely linked to the Haddadian scholars on the one hand and the Javanese royal family uh, on the other, right? So in other words, a geographical composition here works to articulate competing genealogies and itineraries of Islamic transmission uh, 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 that I have discussed uh, in in the book, right? Uh, And this in turn... uh, affords him the possibility to authoritatively nest himself in different Islamic communities in Java and articulate the Sunnah for them, albeit without necessarily determining uh, its success, right? So to speak of um, uh, a geography as an outcome of composition is to underline the heterogeneous materials that come to be articulated to create the hagiographic products, right? Including uh, 
stocks, uh, material forms, tombs, etc., etc. I use the term composition because it resonates with an old Javanese notion of authorship that posits an author as a composer, a pangangit or pangikat, uh, someone who product- productively interlaces ngangit uh, and binds together ngikat old and new texts, thereby blurring the distinction between the act of writing as physical replication of prior inscription and as original composition, right? This means that uh, a geographical composition opens up the past to various contingent processes and unstable relationships with the present. It certainly posits the past as real and not mere fiction, but its reality cannot be divorced from the reality of its composition. And this general factual, uh, and this... uh, uh, generates uh, factual ambiguity that cannot be easily resolved, right? It generates ambiguity in the relationship between the past and the present, such as with regard to whether the Bin Yahya saintly dynasty that Habib Lutfi talks about truly existed historically, or whether it is just a contemporary construction aimed for present and future expansion of uh, Habib Lutfi's um, uh, Islamic community, right? Um, uh, the Authority of a hagiographical composition, I think, is built on the contingent involvement of different actors uh, with leverage of a multiple uh, regimes of knowledge, uh, of different uh, uh, um, you know, kinds of materials, um, all of which require careful orchestration to ensure that they are articulated in a coherent manner, right? In other words, the significance, truthfulness, and authority of a geographical composition are sustained by labor and social relation, which means that there is a constant risk of disentanglement, right? So, you know, instead, Kelvin, of trying to somehow resolve that ambiguity, this factual ambiguity uh, in the relationship between you know the past and the present, uh, in the chapter, I try to reproduce it, right? Uh, uh, you know, why do I do that? Because my friends and interlocutors in the field rarely exhibit certainty about the veracity of this geographical composition, right? Habib Lutfi himself often faced difficulty in, in, in conclusively uh, ascertain uh, the identity of an old tomb. So ambiguity is really central to these forms of engagement uh, with the past. Uh, And in in retrospect, um, I think it is precisely this persistence of ambiguity that makes hagiographical composition an ongoing project. And this is why, for me, a useful way of approaching a hagiographical composition is not to ascertain its possible truth uh, or attempt to falsify it, but to observe how people have come to accept or reject its truth an authority while thinking about the productive potentials of historical ambiguity. Thank you so much for that. And I think that that relates really nicely to your epilogue and the book in general, because there's this sort of refusal to have it be a nice narrative of resolution, right? Because Mm -hmm. the book consistently insists that we need to sit with complexity, we need to sit with ambiguity, and that Mm -hmm. and that the sort of outcome of things may not be as sort of um it's not this neat narrative of um sublation one might say where um two supposedly contradictory things become you know become one but more rather you emphasize that 
um, you emphasize that even in thinking about something like Islam's universality as a concrete universality, it never gets resolved as a sort of ideational commonality, but rather this concrete labor of articulating the sunnah, the community, is productive of um, diversity, both doctrinal and practical. So I think that the sort of ongoing generation of uh, of of contradiction, of ambiguity, of irresolution is something that really runs throughout the book. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's just a really sort of nice way of um, concluding the book. So here I want to invite you on, on the term universality that you use in your epilogue or mm-hmm. concrete universality and how it might differ from what might be termed an abstract universality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Here I'm reminded perhaps of Marx's reading of Hegel's notion of a concrete universality um, and I would just like to invite you to perhaps uh, speak a bit more about that. Right. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Kelvin. Uh, uh, I like to think about the epilogue as a provocation right, for further thinking and research as opposed to a conclusive uh, uh, closure. And uh, you're right. What I'm trying to provoke is a way of thinking about uh, Islam's universality as, as concrete uh, universality. Right. Um, uh, so as I said uh, earlier, uh, the book tries to posit Islam as a sociological achievement, uh, that is, as the outcome of historically contingent and culturally embedded articulatory labor. Uh, and this uh, allows us to develop an analytic approach that stays true to the religion's doctrinal and practical polyphony, while still retaining a notion of monophyletic uh, commonality, right? Remember the date and, and palms and the common ancestors, etc. But does this mean that Islam is not a universal religion? Uh, contrary to what Muslims uh, believe? Uh, Does it mean that as analysts, uh, we should discard this notion of universality? Uh, After all, uh, to say that universality is a site of contest or that universal claims are indissoluble from from particularities has now become an academic truism, right? Or perhaps there's another way of understanding universality, one that is not premised on ideational commonality, but rather on this notion of ancestral or monophyletic commonality. Now, in the literal sense, of course, the term universal carries the meaning of common to all, right? What is common between two entities, for example, has usually been understood as something that belongs to the composition of each entity. This kind of commonality can be established, uh, if it is possible at all, only through abstraction, right? That sets apart the available common features of the two entities. So what is common is imagined as a genus that hovers above its uh, species, right? It is something that can only be abstracted from a given uh, set. Uh, so that's what we mean by abstract universality. Now, commonality that can be accessed only through abstraction, however, is not the only way of making sense of universality. Uh, there is another way of thinking about universality that which is called concrete universality. And, and you're right, uh, Kelvin, Hegel developed this notion, but it was Marx's reformulation uh, of that notion that I think is more useful to think with. Uh, basically, instead of positing commonality as that which can be abstracted from two different entities, we can define commonality as something that concretely exists along with those two entities as its own entity, right? And an example of this is the notion of common ancestor. Uh, Here, what is common to both entities uh, uh, is, you know, uh, uh, is uh, something that exists 
right? Uh, a common ancestor is an example of concrete universal because it is a universal that exists self-evidently, not in abstraction or thought, but as objective reality as real as the particulars and existing along with its derivatives or descendants, albeit, as I said, historically prior, right? For Marx, uh, for example, uh, an example of a concrete uh, universal is labor, right? The most basic form of labor performed by our ancestors has historically developed into diverse variants and generated different relationalities from the simplest to the most complex uh, modes of production, all of which share a common uh, ancestor, right? So perhaps we can think of Islam's universality in terms of concrete universality. Uh, that means what is concretely universal about Islam is labor. It is the labor of articulating the sunnah and cultivating community as an ongoing process. This uh, articulatory labor is the concrete activity that reproduces various social realizations of Islam, uh, each of which is particular and may differ from, uh, from the others, but are all historically connected to and developed from one foundational moment of prophetic labor, right? So if we think of it this way, the universal exists as a concrete material reality, as real as the particulars, and existing alongside its uh, descendants, albeit historically uh, uh, prior, right? It's not something that hovers abstractly over the particulars. And that means what makes Islam a universal religion is perhaps not the presence of common ideas and practices that can only be abstracted from a given set, as I said earlier, uh, and may perhaps exclude other particulars not deemed Islamic enough. Instead, Islam's universality is something that historically develops out of a unity of genesis or descent from a common but vanished ancestral labor, right? This means that what is deemed to be universal may outwardly express itself equally well through, through differences and even opposites. Uh, uh, in this sense, what makes Islam a universal religion is neither an essence nor a core doctrine or a particular outlook integral to the religion, but instead what makes it universal um, is a historical becoming involving contingent processes of reproduction and extension across time and space, right? And of course, at the heart of this historical development uh, is, is human actors who, like the prophet and inspired by him, perform the labor of cultivating uh, communities that can serve as a site for the transmission and social realization of uh, the Sunnah. Well, thank you so much for that, Ismail. And I've taken up so much of your time. So thank you so much for your generosity as well. Um, so as a final question, what are you working on now? Can you tell us a bit about your current and future projects? Uh, this is, I think, uh, by far the most d difficult uh, uh, question. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm now working on exploring uh, the productive role of ambiguity in religion, right, uh, in Islam, through the analytics of voice. Now, of course, modernity has been characterized as an era that ushered in a, a proliferation of authoritative voices, right, that led to the fragmentation of religious authority. Uh, it brings about a condition whereby uh, Islam is increasingly seen as a heteroglossic field in which multiple discourses, logics, and imaginaries converge and undo each other, right? And scholars have used this 
Bactinian concept of heteroglossia to draw attention to the uh, coexistence, convergence, and divergence of multiple uh, discourses. Now, I seek to question this uh, acceptance of modernity as the force that paved the way for the emergence of a heteroglossic uh, field. And I do that by returning to Bakhtin's conception of heteroglossia and its related notion of voice. What is voice? What is a voice? Uh, How does it relate to heteroglossia? I think what is useful from Bakhtin lies precisely in his approach of differentiating voice from discourse, right? That is, two distinct voices can make up a discourse. Similarly, a myriad of discourses can instantiate only a single voice. (laughs) So it seems to me that one characteristic of modernity is actually the contraction and harnessing of possible voices, say divine voices, angelic voices, prophetic voices, diabolic voices that may be present in a discourse and the ambiguity that comes with it. So in contrast to existing works on Islam and modernity, I seek to uh, focus not on discursive fragmentation and multiplication, but on contraction uh, and tightening of voice, right? to the extent that one voice defines a person, one voice defines a discourse. Uh, The existence of incommensurable or contradictory voices within a single discourse or a single person or a single text uh, is increasingly deemed as somewhat problematic. And uh, I seek to approach this uh, problematic by looking at several sites like prophetic speech, saintly speech, Islamic law as understood among uh, modern commoners, and so on. And the focus will remain Haldramaut and Indonesia, uh, of course. Uh, I think that's all I can say (laughs) right now. You should ask me again back in a few years. (laughs) No, but that sounds, that all sounds really exciting. And as usual, you bring your characteristic theoretical ambition and erudition to to this new project as well. Uh, And I'll definitely be looking out for it. So thank you so much, listener, for listening to today's episode. And thank you so much, Ismail, for joining us today in which we explored What is Religious Authority, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. You can find the book on bookshop.org and other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.